we need to start to understand what consumers really are doing and what they what they say versus what they do. And part of it is you start to realize that consumers lie and they lie to themselves and they lie to you and they, they, they can't predict the future any better than we can. My phrase is always that context creates value, but contrast creates meaning. You need both of these to help people make progress because I can have context, but context without contrast doesn't help me decide. You're listening to Customer Show, the podcast that explores what makes people tick, click, and buy. I'm your host, Caitlin Burgoyne. I'm a marketer by trade and a four-time founder by choice. And I believe whoever gets closer to the customer wins. So here's the multi-million dollar question. In a world where everyone is fighting for your buyer's attention, how do people like us marketers and entrepreneurs who want to drive more sales without working around the clock or resorting to shady marketing techniques? How do we persuade more customers to buy from us? That's the question. And this show has the answers. Everyone wants to sell more. In fact, there's a multi-billion dollar industry built around training people to be better at sales. But before you go out and buy the latest online course from a sales dude you found on LinkedIn, listen to what my next guest has to say. My guest today has taken a different approach. Rather than obsessing about how to sell more, he spent his career trying to understand why people buy. When I first discovered his work, it was a total lightning bolt moment for me. It changed the way that I thought about business and marketing and everything else. And I can safely say that by the end of listening to this episode, I suspect you'll have had a few lightning bolt moments of your own. My guest today is one of the co-architects of the Jobs to be Done theory. He's developed and launched over 3,500 products and worked with companies like Snickers, Intercom, and Ford. His newest book, Demand Side Sales 101, is available wherever fine books are sold. So without further ado, I'm excited to share my conversation with Bob Moesta. We're going to start this conversation from a strange place, but it will all make sense soon enough. Let's start by talking about the elusive milkshake problem. Way back in the 90s, we did, I did some work uh, with a fast food company to basically understand why people bought milkshakes and the the underlying principle was what was the what was the the least productive piece of equipment in the store at the time and how do we actually help it be more productive mm-hmm. and so one of the things that we did is we we understood kind of the I'll say the fundamental jobs of like at some point you know make me feel better so one of them was basically I had a really bad thing happen or I've had emotionally I needed a chance to reset and what you found is a milkshake was that comfort food that people would go towards to basically say I need you know I'm going to have a a cheeseburger and a milkshake is something nostalgic about it but the whole aspect is is that it was that notion of being uh, in a negative place and help me get to a better place if you will and 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 so. But what we did is we actually found this job that was in the, that people were drinking milkshakes in the morning and it made no sense at all. This is back in the mid nineties. And it was before, if you will, protein shakes and, you know, kind of uh, smoothies and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things we were trying to do is basically look at it and go like, well, why in the world are people buying milkshakes? Well, when you talked to them and interviewed them, what you found was the fact is it competed with, you know, basically a bagel and, you know, coffee and some of these other, and you're like, why are they getting it? And it turns out that we found that these people were on very long commutes. 
Like it was only like three or four stores. And to be honest, it was illegal to actually turn on the milkshake machine before 11 a.m. Really? And so, so they were driving to specific locations? Yep. And they were finding it and they were basically, but, but when you look at it, it has protein and has about a carbohydrates. And the whole thing was, is that their stomach would basically get growl, would growl and they would be hungry because they wouldn't have eaten breakfast and it wouldn't make it to lunch. And so it was this whole notion of like kind of food or meal replacement of like, I, I, and it competed mostly with, I just wanted to sleep in, right? And, and, and trying to eat in the car. And so it was a very interesting notion. So I'm a product guy. And so we ended up innovating both on the formulations and, and on the equipment. But in the end, the, the company uh, decided because it was too hard to clean the piece of equipment in the morning, between the morning shift and the afternoon shift that they actually never bought it. But 17 years later, they actually launched almost exactly what we offered, <laughs> That's incredible. And I'm there's just so much to unpack there. Yeah. So one of the things that you said, you've been using some language that I am very familiar with now, but I would love for you to kind of break this down for the listeners a little bit. Yeah. So you said the job that people are using the milkshake for, and you yeah. talked about the thing that it was competing with. I know about this thing called jobs to be done. Yeah. In fact, it's been a total game changer for me. But for anybody who doesn't know, what the heck is a job? Well, yeah, so so to be honest, this, this all really started back uh, in the late '90s when I had I worked. I was an engineer at Ford, and one of the things we had the problem around is talking about what products should do as opposed to what they shouldn't do. Meaning, the problems most pe- most engineers are taught about problem solving, but the aspect of trying to understand what they did. And so I used this notion of trying to talk about what was the job that this system was hired for, right? And so it was really uh, focused on what I call the system or the supply side of the world. But eventually, I started to realize that that customers actually they, they they hire things as well. And so when you start to realize realize that most people think about it as you buy something, but but to be honest, that they focus so much on just the transactional part or leading up to the transaction, and after the transaction, it's done. And what we what, what the jobs we done framework talks about is this aspect of people don't really buy products; they hire them to do a job in their life to make progress. And so. The, the real question is, is, is it's almost like what's the hole that this solution, that, that, that this product or the solution is going to fit into that's going to help them be better. And so what you realize is that when you start to frame it that way, there's all of a sudden this notion of there's a problem, but there's also kind of an aspiration of an outcome. And there's like, it's, it's a multidimensional problem. And so you start to realize that some people talk about the problem or the pains, or some people talk about the gains, but it really is these sets of, of things that are in people's lives that cause them to underlyingly make progress. Nobody randomly buys anything, right? Mm-hmm. It, it might be that they can't. There are no that. impulse purchases. You would. Argue. I don't believe. I don't believe in impulse purchases. When you when you when you sit down and really interview or interrogate somebody about it, you start to realize it's like, oh, I didn't plan to buy the mattress. We were at Costco, and we looked at it, and we both looked at each other, and we bought. It. It's like like, and then the next question is, well, so how long haven't you been able to sleep? Oh, I haven't been able to sleep for two years. Mm-hmm. So it's this notion of like when they don't plan for it, people feel like it's a impulse purchase and consumers will say that. But the reality is there's a set of dominoes that have to fall in people's lives for them to do anything. Because in the end, we are creatures of habit. If it works and it's doing well, there's just no reason to change. And so right. part of it is to understand what are those forces that are at play and, and and what is the sequence of things that happen to somebody to say, today's the day I need a, you know, I need a new phone or I need a new laptop or I need a, to be honest, I need a pack of gum. And you start to realize it's, 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 being able to see the world through these lenses helps you actually start to understand the almost like the full picture. Mm-hmm. The, the other part is you start to realize that what the 
consumer sees and what's meaningful to the consumer is very different to what is meaningful to the company. And a lot of times you find marketers trying to get news and create differentiation and be different. But the reality is a lot of times it's just not even meaningful to customers. And so part of the jobs aspect is understand what's the meaningful level of differentiation in their lives that helps them make progress. What can jobs be done teach us about how people make decisions? So the book that, I, that I, I'm launching is basically it's called Demand Side Sales. And it's this, this aspect of what, what happens is, is that this, we start to actually forget or to be honest, we need to start to understand what consumers really are doing and what they, what they say versus what they do. And part of it is you start to realize that consumers lie. And they lie to themselves and they lie to you and they, they, they can't predict the future any better than we can. If I said, what are you going to have for lunch next Tuesday, right? Or next, next Friday, for example, you, you, you can guess, but it doesn't cause you to have it. And I can't predict that you're going to have it. But if I asked, for example, the last, what you had last Tuesday or la, you know, a week ago, Tuesday, it's like, okay, from that, I can actually start to see here's, here's the things that lined up for you to say, I picked a chicken sandwich. And if I understand basically, well, I haven't had one in a while and it's this and it's that and me sitting down with like, you start to realize there's variables that are happening in people's lives that enable them to choose this thing into their lives. Right. And so, so, so ultimately that, that's what you're trying to actually understand. I love that. And so selfishly thinking like a yep. marketer and somebody who has insight into product design decisions that are being made in my company, my husband's yep. company, yep. like how will knowing these things, how will understanding my customer's job yep. make my life easier? So what, what, what ends up happening is to be honest, it's about understanding the trade-offs that the consumers are willing to make. So the, the first thing is, is that like, so for example, I work with a software company here. I'm in Detroit and my, my, one of my co-founders, Chris Speck now works for a company called AutoBooks. And when we started to, un, and it, they basically help banks add a lot of the, the, the kind of e-commerce platforms that most like PayPal and Square and all those people have, but they actually plug it in to the banking platform. And so one of the things we did is we just basically found the jobs that the banks were trying to make. And then we found the jobs that the small businesses were trying to make who use it. And as we start to look at it and we look at how, for example, the banks buy this product and what jobs they have, we, we, we actually figured out that, for example, most of the time we're trying to push a demo. What's the demo? What do we say in the demo? And like, like all the things. And when you ask Kyle, who was the, the head of the VP of sales, he kept saying like the demo's just never right. And the moment that we actually unpacked it and actually said, well, where are they in their buying timeline? He literally looked at me and tilted his head like my, you know, like my dog does. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you mean by their buying timeline? Like, I know where they are in the sales, the sales funnel. I said, yeah, but that's our view. But where are they? Are they, are they actually in passive looking or are they actually actively, or are they deciding? And depending on which one, which demo do they really need? And he's like, what do you mean which demo? I'm like, well, Passive looking is where they want to learn the language. They don't even know if they need it. People will say on the phone, like, I need to know, or, hey, can you show me about this? It's I and me in passive looking. But when they get to active looking, it's like, can you show us? You know, we want to do, and it's like, all of a sudden, there's a total different reframing of the language that they're using. And so, so what happens is we ended up changing and and instead of having one demo, we actually made a series of three demos and had them self-identify where they were in their buying timeline. And from that, they've been able to actually double closes and half the time to close. Okay. Let's take a quick time out. 
If you're listening to today's episode, I bet you're already imagining how you can apply all these ideas to your work. But before you go out and eagerly rewrite all of the copy on your website or change your whole marketing strategy, first, I need you to ask yourself this very important question. Do you know, without a shadow of a doubt, who your most valuable customer segment is? If not, you're in trouble. You don't have time to waste by chasing the wrong customers. Even with all of these ideas from our amazing guests, if you're chasing the wrong people, it's going to feel like an uphill battle. But if you're ready to stop wasting time on marketing that doesn't work and attract more dream customers, then I've got something you are going to love. I put together a free tool just for you. I call it my Customer Ranking Calculator. Now, in a matter of minutes, this quick exercise can help you to gain clarity around which customer segments you should focus on and which ones you may want to stop serving. That sounds good, right? So if you want to download this free tool, head on over to customercamp.co forward slash calculator. That's customercamp.co forward slash calculator. Okay, back to the show. So with the buying timeline, this is a concept, again, another one of those light bulb moments for me when I just went, holy crap, this is different and this is true. Can you walk the listener through what does a typical buying timeline look like so, for most of us so or is this, it always the same? Yeah. So this is the crazy part to me. So like for me, when I when I started using this back in the 90s, it was my hack. So I'm a, I had a three close head brain injuries before I was seven. I'm dyslexic. I can't really read and I can't write. And so it's one of these things where or I struggle very hard to do it. And so to me, the, this was kind of developed as my hack to to cope with understanding what what the language was that consumers really meant. And it, and I went towards con- basically what I call criminal intelligence interrogation methods than traditional <laughs> market research. Like at some point in time, it was like I'm trying to make sure I understood what people meant and their intent. But when you started to look at it, there's actually this process they go through. One is there's a first thought. And when you look at the first thought, right – What's so crazy is the first thought is basically where you create space in the brain for a solution to fall into. If 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 you, they don't have a first thought, they can't actually see your product, right? Part of the job uh, or part of the requirements of f- the first thought is really to actually help you create the space. Clay said it actually really well by saying questions create spaces in the brain for solutions to fall into. And for me, that's kind of the, the the thread that I pulled and basically said, look, how do we create a first thought? Well, it turns out there's only four ways. I'm sure there's more, but I've actually only been able to identify four ways that we make a first thought. You ask somebody a question and you don't answer it. So like, you know, how, you know, why is the TV so loud, <laughs> right? right. For, for hearing aids, right? And you don't say, boy, you need hearing aids. You leave it with letting them actually wrestle and wallow in that question and make it have pain to it. But the second one is, is you actually tell them a story that is close or has the elements of what they're going through so they can identify with it and go, oh my God, that's me, right? So you ask them a question or you tell them a story. The third way is you give them a metric, a new metric. Well, how many steps do you do? Like, well, you're not sleeping well at night? You know, like, well, how's your REM? You start to actually teach people a way in which to measure something to say like, oh, I do have a problem. I have to do something with it. And so it's making the, the I'll say the implicit explicit, right? And then the fourth way is actually just stating the obvious, walking in the room for the hearing aids and going like, why is the TV so loud? <laughs> 
right? Or, or just saying like, you know, it's at some point in time realizing like, why do you disengage when every time we go out to eat, it's like, cause you can't hear. And so you start to realize that, that part of this is that, but the, the, the important part here is that the consumer actually has to make the progress. We actually don't solve it for them. And if we go from first thought to deciding like, oh, you don't sleep well, you need a mattress. It's like, no, I don't need a mattress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And so, and so part of this is to let them wallow in it and understand what are they actually re- wrestling with. And so the second phase is called passive looking. And this is where people learn. Most people start by only understanding the problem language. So like I work with Intercom, and one of the things that was funny is that when we first started working with them is they kept talking about all the features and benefits of the product, but the reality is is that the people who were struggling actually had no idea what to call, how to search for anything they made. (laughs) And so by flipping it back to the the problem language and to the struggling moment language and then talking about the outcome language, they then can start to say like, oh, I understand. And this is about learning then what do you do? And so part part of passive looking is that notion of going through life and literally learning as you go. You're not really investing yet. And then you move to active looking. Active looking is where you're looking at possibilities. It's like seeing it all. Like, well, we could do this or we could do that. And it's almost like like I call it magic wand thinking. It's like all the things you hope for and wish for. It's like, well, can it do this and can it do that? And, and at some point, it's like this, this euphoria of kind of seeing what's possible. But then you move to deciding, right? Deciding is where you have to make the trade-offs. It's where you actually have to fundamentally start to, to weigh things against each other and say, like, do you want this and this, or do you want that and that? Or you can have it this way, but it's going to take six more weeks. And do you want to actually have it earlier, or do you want to have it more complete? That's up to you. And so deciding is about having them make commitment to actually commit to the progress they want to make. Mm-hmm. And then you get to first use, right? And, the, and first use is, is basically where it starts to say, does this meet the expectations of what was set as I was deciding and making my trade-offs? And then you basically build ongoing use, which is, which is the habit. And so part of this is to realize like sales, marketing, and customer services all work together to feed the customer through this process. It's their process, not ours. That's what I'm trying to actually articulate is like sales is our process. Marketing is our process. But the reality is, is they have inputs, they have outputs, they actually have actions that they do. And so part of it is when we break the, the timeline down into smaller steps, you start to realize whether I'm buying a pack of gum, buying a milkshake, buying a new CRM system, or buying a house or changing changing churches, it, they all follow this process. Right. And this, you're so right. Cause thinking of this from like the internal perspective, we throw around this language that doesn't actually mean anything for our customers. You know, it's a marketing qualified lead or it's a right. sales qualified lead, yeah. but all that says is where they are in our timeline. It doesn't tell us where, where they are in their timeline. That's and right. so this is brilliant. And so you mentioned, you know, work you've done with intercom this I, you know, my, my world is very much enwrapped in the tech startup community. That's a place that I've spent a lot of time and I follow a lot of what's happening there, especially around marketing and growth and jobs to be done seems to just have been fully adopted by that community. And you hear about it, you, you know, intercoms writing about their experience, but like taking a step back, you just told this amazing story about the timeline. 
I read, I, I believe it was um, a course that you did. I, I watched the course and I heard you tell a story about when you did this with people who are buying condos. Can you yeah. kind of take us for a walk through yeah, when you yeah. would go out and interview them and learn yeah. their timeline? Like what were the, what was happening so, on so, the buying journey? So in, in, so one of the things, so I've done seven startups and one of them was basically I, I, I ran a private equity firm for about six years and I hated it. Primarily because I was trying to provide money and expertise and all people wanted was your, was your money. So <laughs> what I ended up doing is winding it down and I basically tried to find a business where I could actually stay home and be local with my four kids and family and my wife. And so I, I started building houses. So in 2004, basically, I, I joined a building company with the intent to basically uh, invest and basically uh, buy into the building and, and the development company. And as we started to do it, is is one of those things where I call it a little bit like the jobcation. It's a job I can do one hand tied behind my back. I don't have to do, work too hard at it, but I could use all the tools and methods that I've been using for the last twenty years at the time. And so when we started, you know, doing it, the first thing we did is we interviewed basically people to say what caused people to say today's the day they would buy one of our condos. And so the first thing is we don't really talk to people who want a condo because it's like my first week they made me actually sit through a focus group of what people wanted in new homes. And like they had all, you know, stainless steel appliances and, oh, I want grand and hardwood floors. And like they want everything. But the reality is, is like they have no notion of trade-offs of what they buy. And so my second week, I basically went off and started to interview people who actually bought our condos and moved in. And I bring a, a pizza and some soda and we sit down at the kitchen table. I bring a big, what do you call it, white flip chart. And basically we draw a timeline and we basically go like, how in the world did you get here? And we wow, first, thought, first thought, passive looking. And what I make them do is I'd make them draw pictures and use no words. <laughs> mm. Right. And so they, so then we would unpack the language of what happened and how they did it. And so think of it as a, basically we built for first time home buyers, divorced family with uh, kids and downsizers. Think of like your parents, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things you start to realize and is, is the downsizer market is like, there's, 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 there's a set of things that go on and what we would call the push of the situation. And the push are all about the context that they're in. And so it's like, what causes your parents to say, boy, we should move has nothing to do with the solution has only what to do with the current situation is like the house is too big. It's already paid for. We've got a lot of money tied up to it. The the neighborhood is uh, kind of like turning over and they're younger and we don't really know anybody. You know, the kids have moved away. There's the, you know, we, um, you know, the, the, the laundry's in the basement and where I got to take it up two flights of stairs. We got to clean the gutter. Like there's just a whole bunch of things. Right. And, and this is what we would call the push of the situation. And so what causes people to say like, boy, we should think about moving. And what you realize is if they, if, if they have a lot of pushes and they have no idea what to do, this is where people complain a lot, right? And so to me, it's a, a, the phrase I would say back in the day would be bitching ain't switching, right? So this is where they <laughs> just bitch, you know, your parents are going like, no, I hate this, blah, blah, blah. And, and, but the moment that they see my condo, there's some pull. And so the interesting part is it's not really what about my condo. I'm like, what did they think life was going to be like with that condo in their life? And so as they walk through it, you start to realize it's like, oh my gosh, you know, first floor living, right? It's all of a sudden there's all these pulls. It's like a brand new kitchen. This is the gourmet kitchen we always wanted. It's like, oh my gosh, there's no maintenance, right? Oh, we can we can shut the door and travel. Like there's these things that start to come up that pull people towards the future. But the moment that they see the condo, there's also this secondary set of forces called the anxiety forces that push people back. Like, like, where's the grocery store? How are we going to move everything? Oh my gosh, the house needs to actually, we need to paint the house. We got to do some repairs if we're going to move, right? 
And then there's this other force called a habit force, which is the things they love about the current house, mm-hmm. which is this is where we raise the kids. And so part of it is once we understand how those forces play together and how they they play out over the timeline, you start to realize there are certain struggling moments that we had to address. One of them was the notion of moving because most of them would have houses that were, you know, 2000 to 3000 square feet, four to five bedrooms, and, and they're moving into a two bedroom, two and a half bath, you know, ranch condo. And, and it was about 1600 square feet. So they had to get rid of stuff. And what you found is people were pushed and they were pulled, but there was so much anxiety about how to clean out the house and fix the house and do all these different things. So one of the things we did is I raised the price of the condo, but I included moving and storage. Two years of storage and a place to sort the 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 stuff that was in the house in in the clubhouse, so they could actually. So when you came to visit, they could literally go like, "All right, here's your stuff. Please take it." Right, twenty two percent increase in sales. That is miraculous. And right? no, and had you not had these conversations, who else is thinking about? It? Were any well, of your competitors doing anything close? Well, to no, that? no. So there's there there's a whole bunch of things, but part of it is is most people the way we were taught was to add more features or run a promotion. Like you can get granite for 5,000, you know, we'll give you free granite or take $5,000 off. And I did none of that because I felt like at some point in time, every promotion actually devalues the product. And so my thing is, is making sure that we understood exactly what they needed and be able to do it because most of the time people wait for promotions. And what you realize is that at some point in time, that's really not a causal mechanism, but just a, just a, it's just a trigger mechanism. And so actually, can I actually figure out how value is irrelevant of the trigger? That's my brain is just exploding. And as, as a marketer, there's so many insights there when it comes to trying to get in front of people at the right time. Because I mean, That's if right. you're buying advertising, if you're deciding where to spend your budget, there's so much interesting details there. You talked about the gutter cleaning, right? Yeah. What an what a wonderful audience to target with a Google ad. Exactly. So you know that people are having to hire that gutter cleaner because they don't want to do it themselves. They don't feel safe getting up on the ladder anymore. Well, that might be a great person to show an ad to. So that's the thing is what we end up starting to find is all these really other places to buy AdWords that were so much cheaper than everybody else because it wasn't, it wasn't, if they were already in active looking, like to be honest, I pulled all my ads out of the newspaper because if they were active looking, they already knew we existed. Mm-hmm. It was this notion of giving them the first thought or having them come look or basically having a way in which to have them, you know, be part of the process and create that question of like, well, how much longer are you really going to stay here? Right. right, right. You want to seed that first thought, helping That's them to exactly seed right. that first. Thought. That's right. This and so, 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 part of it was most people didn't think they could move. So we formed, we created a landing site called ItIsPossible.org, and we basically said, and we literally asked questions around the pushes. What? Why do you need to move today? What are you hoping for in your new house? Why do you think you can't move? Right. What's holding mm-hmm. you back? And what are the things you love about your current house? And then we built a Mad Lib that helped people basically say, is this your situation? And so before they even showed up, we literally had their story. This is so good. <laughs> like, And so many marketers that I know and and founders that are wearing the marketing hat, they're struggling. They're trying the, the, you know, the go-to playbook. They're thinking that they have to compete on AdWords spend and you've got to get that ebook out there, that ultimate guide to X. And what you're talking about here, these are the types of ideas and insights that do not just come up in the boardroom. Like no, you, you, can't, you have to go outside. You have to go outside. I think the, the bigger part is like a lot of times people say, well, I'm building something that doesn't exist. And so the way I always uh, advise people there, I'm like, so one is I don't believe there's any new consumption. Mm-hmm. 
So my belief is that people will stop doing something when they start using you. So what are you unpack the, can you just for anybody who's the yeah. language consumption, can you explain using it? So my thing is, right. is like, if you think about it, like, well, people say, well, Facebook back in the day was brand new. And it's like, but in the end of the day, what is it going to actually compete with? And what is people going to stop doing because they have Facebook? Right. And right. you start to Writing realize letters or, it's the telephone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the Sunday night call to your parents to basically say, well, what happened this week? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Or, or going or, and sitting in front of the coffee shop and like catching up on the local gossip. Exactly. And so part of it is to realize that, that you were going to do different things with it. And so you start to realize that most people think about things that compete inside the category. And, and so one of the other things I worked on was Snickers. And you start to realize that Snickers is the single biggest selling candy bar in the world. But the reality is it's not a candy bar. It's Did you work bar. on Snickers? I didn't know that. I yeah. used Snickers as an example in all of my workshops around that whole yeah, yeah. Satisfies campaign. Were you part of the Yeah, was, so that? I was part of the product side of that. And so Oh man, now I'm even more of a fangirl. So, <laughs> and so the whole aspect here was is that it's the hangry part that we came up with is that when you missed your last meal, your stomach's growling, you still have work to do, and you don't have time to basically go eat, or that the fact is you don't want to actually get your whatever you're working on as like mainlining food. And so what we did wow. is we raised the melting temperature of the caramel you basically made it stickier so it actually uh, masticated into a ball and swallowed it and it hit your stomach and it's absorbed the acid like there's all these kind of insights you get but part of it had to realize what did it really compete with and it competed with a cup of coffee and an apple and a sandwich it didn't compete with milky way Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. this is where people keep thinking because they're in the same category they should actually be competitors and the reality is is that what the consumer sees and how the consumer thinks of a competitive set is actually situationally or contextually, you know, important. And so you start to realize that, that they don't think in categories. They don't think about it as a candy bar. One of the things that I say all of the time in the marketing world, there's this slogan people throw around, which is like content is king. And my big belief is that context is yeah. king. Like it doesn't even matter what you're putting out there, what, you know, what format it is, what the message is. If it's not contextual right. to what the audience is interested in, if it doesn't actually fit into the narrative about where they're going in their life and what matters to them, it doesn't matter what the content is. My phrase is always that context creates value, but contrast creates meaning. And what happens, you need both of these to help people make progress because I can have context, but context without contrast doesn't help me decide. Right. So can you unpack that a little bit? Um, So so for example, one of the things we talk about in in deciding is to make sure you give people three options mm -hmm. and you got to make them very different options so they can see the trade-offs they have to make. Right. So, so, so for example, I did some interviews and my, to be honest, I'll, I got a better one. My friend buys a new car, right? So I'm a car guy. I love cars and buys an Audi RS seven, which is just an amazing car. It's over a hundred thousand dollars, like just amazing car. And he drives up and I look at him like, God, it's just gorgeous. And he gets out. What do you think? I'm like, it's great. He goes, yeah, it's gray. I'm like, excuse me. He goes, well, I wanted silver. I'm like, but it's gray. He goes, yeah, I had to wait another two weeks. I'm like, so you weren't willing to wait two weeks for it. He goes, no, I don't think we would have been able to get it. And it would have taken longer. And I, this is the one I, I just, and my car lease was, I mean, all these, and it's like, it's a trade-off he was willing to make. And you start to realize like they understand the trade-offs and, and can we actually see how people make trade-offs? So instead of saying like, I'll get you that car, it's like, let me give you, I can get this car today or you can wait. And oh, by the way, probably charge you a premium for the pink color you do want. Right. right? And so yep. you start to realize that people just keep throwing stuff in and, and sales has been kind of reduced to order taking and closers as opposed to actually 
like helping people make progress. So the name of the book is Demand Side Sales 101, which is just the basic concepts of it. But it's the then it's stop selling and help people make progress. Mm-hmm. And you start to realize when you talk to people about the best buying experience they ever had, and then you go, so tell me about your salesperson. And they go, well, they weren't a sales. They, they were a concept. They were a help. Like they almost like the use of the word sales is, is like a, a bad term. It's not good enough to describe this person. Exactly right. And so what you start to realize is, is the, the other part of this was, so I wrote it for really three reasons. One is, is the fact is, is that one is there's no sales prof- or there, there are very few sales professors these days. So 10 years ago, Clay and I were sitting in his office and I'm like, why are there no sales professors? It's like the hardest thing to do in any of the startups I've done. It's like just, but they don't teach it at business school anywhere. Why? I mean, now there's a few, but it's one of those things. And so it was really to push that kind of notion of why don't we teach sales, which is there's no theory. Mm-hmm. So I took jobs theory and put it to sales. The, se- the second part is that there's a lot of people who sell who actually don't really think they sell. So like a, like a, a, a therapist, right? Teacher basically sells a, a, a rehab program to a, to a patient, but they really just help them make progress. Right. And a teacher doesn't really sell a lesson, but they actually help a student make progress. And so part of it is to realize like the foundation here is that, that sales tends to be on the business side of things or on the uh, business to consumer side of things. But the reality is like we all actually help people make progress in every job we do, whether you're, you're in a, you're running a church or whether you're running a school or whether you're running a business, everything's about helping people make progress. That's how value is created. This is this is incredible. And anybody who's listening right now, obviously, they want to go out and buy your book right away. Uh-huh. They want to start applying this. It's interesting you say about universities not teaching sales, because there is a gentleman here in Atlantic Canada, he has a venture firm, and he's run a number of successful companies himself. And it's one of the things he said, I'll give you a million bucks, if somebody can figure out how to actually get people coming out of school to learn sales, because That's we have I'm all doing. of these incredible companies that are failing because they can't sell this great product they've built. So I'm working with Craig Wartman at the so Kellogg, the Kellogg School uh, at Northwestern. They've built a sales institute. They realize how important it is. And what what the so the next book I have is it's called uh, Demand Side Sales 201, and it's mapping basically both marketing, sales, and customer support kind of uh, methods, techniques, tools to the timeline, and basically showing you how the inputs you need to provide and how timing is so important to all of those things. And so to be, it's like the handbook and then uh, demand side sales 301 is really about how do you manage the sales process with respect to understanding the buying process. And so how do we actually change the metrics of sales? Because I actually feel we have, we have what we would always say, the easy things to measure is what we'd work on as opposed to the meaningful things to measure. And we're not actually measuring the meaningful things that actually help us understand how to sell better. I love that. And so in I got to see a little snippet of what's coming with the book. And one of the things that you said that I just, you know, again, stood out to me really as a marketer, is you said that you can now start to plan your go to market strategy around your customer's worldview, and not around the product. So give me an example of a company that actually is doing that well, or has done that well. I I, so uh, let's see. I think intercom is one. I mean, that, 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 so from a, from a software perspective, the whole aspect is is that that they've actually thought about what it's like to be a founder and be able to understand kind of the the the, the problems and the struggles that you have, and then basically turn them into kind of what the outcomes you want, and then from there offer 
offer the right kinds of solutions at the right time. So what they used to be is almost like the jackknife of like, we'll do it all for you. And so they thought, thought of as like, we help manage your customer's information from cradle to grave kind of aspect. But the reality is, is like nobody actually had the job of managing the data. It was about help me fix support or help me get engagement or help me. And that the, the underlying principle is that they did need the data connected, but nobody was actually buying that explicitly. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of it is being able to understand the worldview of like, boy, you know, we just got a startup. We just launched it. It's a software product. And it's like, okay, we see people coming in. We've got Google Analytics checked. Like, but what are people really doing? Like, well, how, where are they getting stuck? How, how do we actually help? You know, it's like, how do you see what's going on? And so to me, it's that notion of being able to use their language as opposed to the solution language that everybody else uses. And so you just see how Intercom is kind of a, you know, they, they, they've like, if you go, just go to their site and see how they've actually laid it out, it's all laid out around kind of what are you actually trying to do as opposed to what we are. So what's interesting is when we, when we, when, when we worked with them, you, you can imagine we, you, we, we do a lot of stuff that's just very, very upfront and, and very uh, confidential with people. And so I think they had probably one of the thickest contracts I've ever seen. It took my lawyer like three weeks just to get through it to you know, lay it out. And, and in the end, it was like, okay, I felt like they could take my firstborn child if I did something wrong, right? <laughs> and, and so I wasn't allowed to talk about it. I wasn't able to say anything. And next thing I know, they're actually just broadcasting that they're using it. And this is the greatest thing. And finally, I like, I need you to sign a release so I can talk about it too. And so it was very funny. It was one of those things like I couldn't talk about it because, but they could. And so, and they, they, they've actually uh, kind of taken a full transparency approach to it to kind of tell you exactly how they use it. Cause they, they know that people try to copy it. It's not easy to do. It's, it's very hard work. It is. And you have to be committed to it and you have to be committed to the long-term gains and you don't always see immediately <laughs> what people are hoping, you know, it's not going to be that like hockey stick immediately, but once you hit those right insights, it can be. Okay. So I want to kind of leave with some practical tips. Everybody's going to want to go read your book. And so you don't need to give us all of them, but I'm going to admit I am one of those people who really just dread selling. It is not something that I look forward to. And there's probably a lot more people like me out there. So what are a few tips that someone like me could apply to make that less icky? So, so to be honest, it's, it's, it's been icky for, I'm an engineer. So if you were to ask, uh, you know, in a million years, I'd never think that I was going to write anything about sales. But the reality is, is that to, to be honest, I think the most practical things are focus on you're not selling, but you're helping. And so if that's the case, like somebody comes to you and says, you know, Caitlin, we need, we need your help. It's like, okay, before I overload you with a thousand things, let's, let me ask you a few questions and ask the questions that are like, so why, why are we here? Why are you here? What's going on? Right? What else have you tried? What are you hoping for? What are you worried about? Right? It's this notion of figuring out where they are in that timeline and figuring out those forces. Because at some point in time, they, you know, what I would say is in passive looking or even active looking, people have such unrealistic expectations. I want a hundred million dollar product that you can launch in 18 months. And I want it to be guaranteed that you're going to do it. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know how to do that. So, that's what, you know what I mean? Like at some point in time, we could say like, here's some of the things you need to do to improve. Here's the things you have to basically put in line. Like, so part of this is being able to have a conversation. And, and so instead of trying to figure out like, how do I sell them and close them? It's how do I help them? And am I really the best thing for them? Like, so the, the one thing that I would say that I've done is I've, I've literally valued my time. 
And so the thing is, is, is the worst thing I can do is actually the, to be honest, the customers that I, I can't help, but I've tried to help have wasted so much of my time and I've never really gotten them that it's almost like they have to earn the right to work with me. And so there's a little bit of arrogance, but it's a little bit more about like, how do I make sure there's the right fit between what they want and what I want so I can actually help them make progress? And maybe so you don't they- waste each other's time too. Exactly. I mean, I'm assuming exactly. Like you talked about where are they at in the journey. Once they have these unrealistic expectations and then you say, sorry, I'm not your guy. Or, and or, then they go off and talk to five more people who can't fulfill those either. Maybe bought, hire someone and whatnot. Like then they come back and they go, okay, show me how to do this. Well, right and this is where I would say, you know, if that's what you're looking for, you probably either want to go to like, like McKinsey, or you want to go here, you want to go there. like there's other people, but the fact is, is given given the budget you have, given the timing you want, given the expertise you have, and given where you're at, like here's here's the three scenarios I see. But the fact is, is like it doesn't seem like there's a really good fit here. And to be honest, I think like when you get down to deciding, the whole thing is is like I think those are the kinds of things where you got to let them decide and you got to give them enough almost a breadth of options so they can eliminate things. Mm-hmm. Right. And so a lot of times it's like, well, let me give you a proposal. I'm like, no, I'm going to give you three different proposals so you can actually figure out which one you want. Cause my belief is people need contrast to actually make a decision. I think that that's such a brilliant insight. I have another person I'll be interviewing on the podcast who runs a company called Proposify, which is one of the uh, fastest growing proposal software companies. And I'm going to tap into that with him. I'm excited to hear because he just did a huge, um, love to hear about it. a huge report on on what actually makes people convert when it comes to buying into proposals. And I wonder if when presented with those three options, if they see higher conversions, that, that will we will see. And so, well, Bob. So, so here's the, there's a trick to it though. I just want to say is like, part of it is, is if you give them three options and they're so close that they can't tell the difference, it doesn't help. Right. You need to give in some cases. So if you really study how people make decisions around those things, you need to actually give them one that you know, they're not going to take because what happens is when there's three, the first thing they do is they eliminate. It's basically called exclusionary theory. So they're going to exclude something. And then from there, they're not going to compare the other two to each other. They're going to compare the other two to the one that's out. And so they're going to actually pick the one, not by which one they want, but the ones that they eliminated. That is incredible. That's such an interesting insight. And so, and so part of it is this is where, so for example, as an engineer, it's like, how do I prototype, let them prototype three different options so they can pick the progress they want? The book comes out September 22nd, and it's uh, it'll be hardcover, softcover, Kindle, and aud- Audible. Like, So I, I'm dyslexic, and so I found a company that helps me write these books. And so we spend we spend like a, about a month kind of outlining the book and deci- defining the jobs of the book, defining kind of, kind of what's the, the target, like what books would people have read, what are they struggling with, kind of all that. And then basically we take two hours every week, and we outline each chapter, and they just... And I basically have both uh, content and examples, and then they go off and write it for me, and then I listen to it. So they read it back to me, and then I I talk back to them. And so within four and a half months, we have a complete book. That's incredible. And since you've been working with them, how much have they learned about how they should be working with their customers? Yeah, this, that's yeah. They've learned they learned quite a bit. It's pretty interesting. I think the the, the funny part about this book specifically is. It's a common, it's a common thing that almost everybody has said once they read it is like, it makes them a better consumer because now they actually understand like, what am I, why am I actually interested in buying that? What progress am I trying to make because I'm buying this? 
Mm-hmm. And so to be honest, I think that that's what it's helped most people with is, is that. But, but from their perspective, it's helping them actually frame out what progress are people really trying to make with the book they're writing. So it's, it's a great company. It's called Scribe Media. It's a godsend for me. So it's, it's, it's wonderful. Fantastic. Yep. Bob, this has been an absolute treat. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Hey there. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to the show. I absolutely love getting nerdy with you and our guests each week. It is just so much fun. And speaking of nerdy marketing stuff, have you heard about the power of reciprocity in marketing? Reciprocity is one of the best methods you can use to persuade people to take action. It's simple. Give something small for free before you ask for a sale. You see this all the time in marketing. Sometimes it's a free sample, a free trial, or even a free podcast like this one. With that in mind, I've got a small favor to ask. If you've gotten at least one aha moment while listening to the show, could you go to Apple Podcasts and give Customer Show a five-star rating? It'll only take a few seconds, and ratings are really the best way to help new people discover the show. I see every rating, and I'm beyond grateful for each one. And who knows? Maybe one day you'll need something from me, and then I can return the favor for you. So thanks again.